Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Mornings can be slow going. But a $1 fresh ground coffee at Racetrack to get you going all month long with Racetrack Rewards? Yeah, that tracks. $1 small coffee for rewards members valid August 2nd through September 5th. Limited time only. See store for details. Make tracks to Racetrack for whatever gets you going. This week on Red Inca, we talk about the common refrain for many cricket fans that the associate teams around the world are largely just Indian or Pakistani second eleven. But in truth, modern sport is much more complicated than that, and certainly cricket is. So we brought on a guest who's a bit of an expert in cricket in many different cultures. My name is Nishad Rego, and in my day job, I work in policy and advocacy for an NGO in Australia. I'm also with Emerging Cricket. We talk about immigration to cricket sort of then and now and how it changed and built cricket nations. We talk about Afghans in Pakistan and Afghans in Germany and Oman and early Australia in South Africa, Ranji, the Thai women's team, and how an Italian footballer had a poster of Alan Border on his bedroom wall. I think it's worth starting with the fact that I am an Australian in England, married to a woman of Sri Lankan heritage. And my children, they quite often say they're half Sri Lankan, half English and half Australian, which I try and point out is mathematically impossible. But tell me about your heritage. So I was born in India. I was born in, in Mumbai. I've heard of that. Yeah, that little place. Left India when I was six and my dad got a job just outside Bangkok. So we moved there when I was yeah, very young and basically grew up in Thailand. So spent from the age of six to 18 there and then moved to Australia to study. And I'm now an Australian citizen, obviously of Indian heritage and my family's in India and also have a strong connection to Thailand. So I guess you could call me a third culture kid, yeah. I think. <laughs> and the reason that obviously we're both starting with those things is because we are talking about the fact that neither of us are in our native culture and we have had to move around and in my case also have bred out those sorts of things. And that's kind of what the piece that you wrote for Emerging Cricket was about, which is how cricket grows in different places. And I think you would have an Australian outlook as much as an Indian outlook and maybe even a Thai cricket outlook um, if there was much Thai cricket around when you were growing up. And obviously, you know, I have this mixed heritage as well when it comes to cricket. And it reminded me of something, when I was reading your piece, it reminded me of something that Gareth Southgate said. 
So, the, you know, the England football coach, he said, when you look at the underage teams, I think he was talking about Europe, but he might have been talking about the world. So when you're looking at the underage teams, it's like everyone is a dual citizen. Everyone can represent one, two, maybe even three different countries. You know, it's not as straightforward as anything. And I don't know if you're a big football fan. I'm not. But I remember this fact. I had to Google it to make sure I was right. There's an Italian footballer called Christian Vieri who played about 50 games for Italy. Now, he was born in Italy. But he actually spent, I think, about 10 or 11 years in Australia growing up with an Alan Border poster on his wall and then moved back to Italy to become a footballer. I think he did that in the 80s into the 90s. That shows that even back then how much these sorts of things were happening. It's a really, really international sporting culture now when your family can just up and move to a completely different country at any time. Absolutely. And, and you know, you talk about the 80s. I remember growing up, fishing around on the internet um, in relation to European cricket and noticing that a lot of the guys that were playing for Greece and Croatia at the time had actually learnt their cricket in Australia and some of them were Australian citizens. So, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. Obviously, today we're in an even more globalised world, barring the last year or so. And yeah, anywhere you look really, not just in cricket, but in any sport, you see those connections to different places and they manifest in different ways as I articulate in the piece. Well, it goes both ways. When you talk about the Croatians, I mean, Simon Katic and Mitchell Stark, I think are both Croatian. There might be, there's been some Serbian players. There was Theo Doropoulos, who obviously played underage cricket for Australia. So that sort of back and forth is going on all the time. Your piece is more about associate cricket, so let's forget the fact that Simon Kadic put a H on the end of his name, uh, well, his family put a H on the end of his name at some stage. You start with talking about the Russian cricket CEO, Ashwani Chopra. Now, he says the Russian cricket team does not want to be taunted as an Indian or Pakistani second eleven and be the butt of jokes on social media. I don't know how much of cricket history Ashwani Chopra knows, but as someone who's done a lot on early Australia and early South Africa, the early Australian team was interchangeable with England. In fact, players were just going back and forth over and over again. The early South African team, it's now thought of as a white cricket culture, but it was actually, it wasn't even a white cricket culture back then. It was white English cricket culture. Most of the players, again, were English and probably wouldn't have even said that they were South African at that point. The other reason is that Australia was playing as a nation before Australia was federated as a country. I mean, this is a very ancient sport, and so you don't have to go back that far, and I understand what Chopra is saying there, but realistically, the only difference between the Indian and Pakistani second eleven and what happened with Australia and South Africa was the lack of social media. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head, and this goes back to the point that I make in the, in the early part of the piece, which is the way cricket has developed in the last three, four hundred years is that it's come out of the British Empire and it was spread by Britons, played by Britons, brought to these you know new countries by Britons. And, and so if you look far back enough, pretty much every cricketing nation or club or region, however way it was organized, you would have a white British presence there. That's just the reality of the sport. And a lot of people forget that or don't know about it or don't think about it. I'm a little bit distracted by your previous point, which is just going back to, um, you know, the Greeks and and the the Russians. It just brought to mind a a guy in Sydney called James Pantanak. He played a fair bit of first grade and played some, some New South Wales cricket as well. And I remember back in the day when I just moved to Australia from Thailand, thinking, oh, is this guy potentially... Thai Australian and can we get him into the Thai cricket setup? Anyway, it turned out he was Laotian Australian 
and that was a dead end. But anyway, I was just fixated on that point. If we go down that tunnel, you've then got, you know, Richard Chiqui and, and Jason Crozier and Phil Hughes's mother might have even been born in Italy. Like, I mean, Australian cricket is so weird because of that. But that's another thing that probably doesn't get talked about enough is these sort of mixed heritage of all these different players from around, you know, Australia and New Zealand sometimes had it as well. But the other one that I, I found interesting in your piece is how Indian laborers uh, moved the game around. So I, I know that Malaysia cricket was quite strong in Malaysia. I remember reading a very old cricket book on the origins of cricket in Hong Kong. And they were talking about how Malaysia and Sri Lanka were natural cricket countries and Hong Kong wasn't, which is mad in its own way. But I didn't realize that Malaysia was so strong. And then you've got also the Indian laborers also, and I'm assuming this is the Parsis, but you can probably tell me, also spread it to um, parts of Africa as well. Yeah. I mean, in different parts of Africa, there were there were different communities that went. So, for example, in East Africa, that is Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, it was largely the Gujaratis that traveled there. And, and in fact, I'd, I'd done a profile for EC on Tanzania cricket, and it was the Gujarati migrants who set up the first gymkhanas, cricket gymkhanas, first cricket grounds, and set up the first leagues in those countries. But yeah, you have stories like that everywhere. I'm most familiar with Thailand, and there's a large Sikh Indian community in Thailand that have migrated at various points, the 80s, uh, and then going further back just after partition as well. And if you look at the, the relatively small and not very notable domestic club scene in, in Thailand, you will find that there are a lot of Sikh Thai citizens of Punjabi origin, Sikh, Sikh citizens who are, who are playing the sport there. In fact, the, the men's captain is, a, I think, a third or fourth generation Sikh Thai guy. So, yeah, again, it, this is everywhere. Yeah. Cricket. You just have to look hard enough. And over the last what? maybe since the 60s, there's obviously been an explosion in Indian, Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Bangladeshi immigrants to Western countries, to Eastern countries, like just exploding out of the place. I mean, when I grew up in Melbourne, people across the road were Sri Lankan. The people next to them were Sri Lankan. Two houses down from us were Sri Lankan. My first um, childminder after school was at Sri Lankan. My friends were Sri Lankan. Like, it was like that hotspot. And then five years, 10 years later, the Bangladeshis turned up. And then after that, it was the Indians turned up. And, you know, you have that in the UK, but you also have that in places like UAE and Oman and South Africa and all, all sorts of countries around the world. It makes sense then if their national sport, by, by that stage, by the 80s, certainly, the national sport of pretty much all of those Asian countries is cricket. Hockey and football certainly had a hold of India and uh, Bangladesh at times, and obviously they're squash in Pakistan. I'm not sure squash is ever a national sport. I'm not sure squash could be a national sport. But let's leave squash aside for I don't want to slander squash. But essentially, they took with them, and whether they were going to a cricket country or to a non-cricket country, a lot of these subcontinental places took the cricket culture with them, didn't they? So it makes sense in that huge wage of immigration that they were going to take it with them. Yeah, I mean, and that's the constant in all of this, is that wherever South Asian migrants have landed up and whatever form of migration, whatever the purpose of their migration whatever their class background, cricket has inevitably gone with them and cricket becomes almost like a marker of their identity in the place that they land up in. And in some contexts, that helps build bridges, such as in the Australian context. And in others, it just becomes this thing that 
they do in whatever space they can find and you know anyone who's passing by looks at them weird <laughs> i mean it used to happen in in bangkok like we lived on a university campus full of southeast asian students and they had an astro cricket pitch at the university ground because there was also a large south asian student population there you know we'd have constant battles with these guys trying to play soccer and on the same field right? and they had no idea what we were doing they couldn't care less they'd pick up the ball and they'd go what is this? like why are you playing with this really hard strange thing so yeah again you you're absolutely right as south asian migration as we've seen the emergence of middle classes in a lot of these countries we've seen more and more south asians go all around the world and take the game with them and in some cases earlier migrants from south asia who have traveled there in different contexts and what i find interesting um, and i think you'd have to look into this a lot more is how for example a third generation naturalized south asian migrant in the us or germany interacts with a first generation south asian migrant in those countries in the context of cricket hmm. open question and obviously would differ by context yeah. No, I mean, it's really interesting. And I suppose a lot of this comes down to, you know, you obviously write for emerging cricket and associate cricket when a lot of cricket fans don't see these teams until they're at a World Cup. And suddenly UAE turn up and every player looks Sri Lankan or Pakistani with, with a couple of Indians there as well. Oman turn up again with a very Pakistani. Do they have Sri Lankans as well? I know a very Pakistani team. But one of the things you talk about in the piece is that's not always a fair assumption of the background of these players. So Karam Khan, who is, if not the best UAE cricketer, is certainly in the best handful and one of the most famous cricketers. He has been in the UAE pretty much his whole life, hasn't he? And he's not the only one. There's a lot of UAE cricketers who've been in, in the UAE their whole life. But because their family are not Emiratis, they are still referred to as Pakistanis, but they're actually, in many ways, they've grown up and sometimes, you know, have been born in that country. And yet still, to the outside cricket fam, we still see them as Pakistanis. Yeah, the Arab Gulf context is quite unique in that the structure of pretty much all of those economies is such that they rely on low-paid, low-skilled, as they would call it, um, labor, mainly from the subcontinent, in services industry, in construction, and in a range of other areas. And so there's a very well-established system of labor migration into those countries that has been going for, for decades now, so 30, 40 plus years. And because of the political vagaries of those Gulf monarchies and the fact that they have really very small indigenous Arab populations, mm these migrants don't have access to citizenship. So they will never be citizens. So, you know, Koram Khan is a, is a great example of someone who, um, yeah, went to the UAE in 1999. Um, he only was able to go there by virtue of his job with Emirates Airlines. So he was sort of slightly more skilled labor, ended up dominating Emirates cricket and associate cricket and for a long time. But his ability to remain in the UAE and remain connected with the UAE relies still on his on his employment. So if he lost his job with Emirates Airlines tomorrow, he would actually have to return back to Pakistan. I mean, the starker example for me is, is Ahmad Raza, who's the captain of, of UAE at the moment, who was born there and, and has never lived in, in Pakistan. Mm. But, you know, as captain that side, I played under 15s, under 17s with him. He has been there from, from a very young age and has done so much for UAE cricket. But 
as things stand, will never be a UAE citizen. It has, really has no connection to Pakistan beyond his family. Right? Mm. So that's the very specific context of the Gulf. And then, of course, there's a spectrum of immigration policies and official integration allowed in other areas of the world. Yeah. I suppose the newest team that hasn't quite broken through yet at the major levels, but it's going to be attacked in the same way, is going to be Germany. So it's been an incredible story of Germany allowing so many Afghanistani refugees um, into their country. And I'm sure most cricket fans now have probably heard a story or two about the fact that that has completely revolutionized their cricket team. They used to have, you know, uh, people like uh, former journalist Andre Leslie, the Australian guy who used to play for Germany. And now it seems like it's a, it's almost like, I don't want to say the Afghan second 11, because uh, they might not be, but it's very, very heavy on Afghan cricket. I think that's going to be a shock the first time Germany qualify for anything. It's interesting. I initially assumed that all of the new Afghan players in the German national team of Afghan descent were refugees who had come in this latest wave since 2015. But when I actually looked through their squad lists, they're actually a conglomerate of migrants who've come in different ways. So Mm. there's a couple of Afghan descent players on that side who moved to Germany after marrying German citizens of Afghan descent. There are others who, of course, came in that in that wave of, of refugees and migrants in 2015. So it's a, it's a really um, interesting example of how different kinds of migrants can make up a national team. But you're absolutely right. The, the quality of their domestic competition, as I spoke to Brian Mantle, who's the CEO there um, uh, earlier this year for another piece. And and he was saying, you know, it's just it's been an explosion in cricket participation that's not necessarily translated yet into their sort of elite competitions and their pathways. And also it's getting into the national team. But mm. he was saying, look, much depends on whether these guys are actually afforded a refugee status, whether that refugee status means that they will be able to stay in Germany as permanent residents and ultimately as citizens. Some will not be, and they will have to return. And so there's a kind of transience to the makeup of cricket participation in Germany at the moment, but it's definitely grown the game. I mean, one of the other things you talked about, you you mentioned Brian Mantle there. We talked about Chopra, who is the CEO of Russian cricket. You've also got Craig White in Mexico. There's, uh, is that Kanab Kimji in Oman? And there's another one I'm missing in Thailand, isn't there? Yeah, Martin Carter, yeah. 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 There's a lot of expats from all different, you know, uh, uh, Craig White, I think is British, isn't he? Um, Not that long ago, your boss at Emerging Cricket, Tim Cutler was, you know, is an Australian who was working in Hong Kong cricket. So you have people from the UK, from Australia, from Pakistan, from India, in these other countries, running the game and formulating it and basically trying to bring it up. So even if the players are local, quite often the people who are running it or, you know, have, there aren't as many Pavel Florens in some cases as there are Tim Cutlers to compare two incredible specimens of humanity there. Yeah, I mean, there's two things to say about that. One is that in many cases, it can't be in any other way, just because the depth of knowledge and the the understanding of cricket culture combined with perhaps the skills to run an association just doesn't exist amongst indigenous populations of particular places. So it actually takes a real trailblazer from elsewhere to grow the game in that way. And a lot of these guys like Brian Mantle, Craig White as well, Craig's been there for eight plus years, I think, Kada in Thailand's been there for decades and kind of Kimji's you know, an institution in Oman. These guys, they have built the associations, but the sport, many of mm. them from scratch. They're starting with nothing. I mean, in Mexico, they get 18,000 bucks 
a year from the ICC, right? The related point to that is that when you're doing that, you're not doing it for anything but the love of the game. So when we think about the role of the foreigner or the expat or however you want to call it and their relationship to cricket in that country, um, and we go on this trajectory of, of talking about Indian second 11s and Pakistani second 11s as a kind of pejorative or criticism of those people. Well, actually, it takes a lot of these people to build the sport from scratch. And they don't do it for money. They don't do it for, they, they do it for the right reasons. So, Well, I mean, one of the interesting things with that is I remember covering Afghanistan's first World Cup in 2015 and watching them be trained in the sorts of things I learned as a 12-year-old bowling cross seam and using the crease and all those sorts of things. You can't build up the cricket knowledge without people who actually understand the game. There's a lot of stuff that you don't learn just from watching a little bit of cricket on TV. You literally need to be involved in that environment. And these guys bring that in. The other interesting thing, especially when it comes to Afghanistan, and you talk about it in your piece, is a lot of the sort of national boundaries that we think about. The Afghanistan cricket team is not the Afghanistan cricket team. It is the East Afghanistan cricket team. It is the West Pakistani cricket team, I suppose, in its own way. I wrote a piece, I think it might have been 2016 World T20, where I basically, every time I asked an Afghanistani cricketer who's your favorite cricketer, they said Shahid Afridi. So I looked more and more into it. They had more ethnic background with Shahid Afridi than Shahid Afridi did with some other Pakistani cricketers. So it just happened to be that where the Durand line was drawn, <laughs> happened to go right between what could be one sort of cricket region of the world and on one half they went to Pakistan and they played cricket and on the other half they didn't and then when they did they went well this Shahid Afridi looks good we want to be like him because he's more like us than other Afghanistanis are so that sort of nationalistic look at cricket it doesn't really mean that much and as I said earlier Australia was playing cricket as Australia before Australia was a federated country so you do have those sorts of situations in cricket where it's not a we look at it in a modern thing, but cricket is actually older than most nations are. That's a perfect example of that reality. I work with a lot of Hazaras in my in my other life. Hazaras being a, you know, an ethnic minority in Afghanistan, most of them have not heard of cricket. Cricket is is very foreign to them. It's the Pashtun sport. Mm. And as you say, um, I mean, the point I was trying to make in this piece about that is that national identity and you know citizenship actually doesn't, in that context, is immaterial to the, the fact that, yeah, as you said, cricket was played pre that line being drawn. The line itself is quite arbitrary mm. and, um, you know, representation then becomes, for example, in the context of um, Shahzad, if he was good enough to play for Pakistan, maybe he would have played for Pakistan. I mean, his connections to Peshawar are, by all accounts, are much stronger than they are to Afghanistan. So, again, when we talk about the native and the expat and the foreigner mm. and the local, this is just another circumstance in which you could question that at its very core. What is the nation? What is the state? And who are we representing? Yeah, it's really interesting. And you talk about some of the sort of more famous players who've gone on to play cricket for the associate country. So if you look at, you talk about Dirk Nannis and Grant Jones and, and Tim David is the most recent example of, of a player who has done that. These guys do have this sort of multinational background that we talked about at, at the top of the piece, the Christian Vieri type people. And we think about it in associate cricket and we see it as a bad thing. But when you look at it from a more global standpoint, you've got Kevin Peterson and Jofra Archer and Andrew Simons, all of which were available to play for multiple countries through their parents, through their background. It's a really common thing, partly because 
this is what the empire did. It sort of mixed everything up, didn't it? It allowed for this at a very basic level. So that's why the early cricketers were, you know, playing between Australia and England and South Africa and England, and I think even Australia and South Africa. It's created this big mix of different things. And I remember, you know, so many people saying, and they said it about KP, but KP always felt like he had a British identity because his mother was British. Joffrey Archer's father was a tube driver. Andrew Simons is of West Indian origin. His family that adopted him are from England, and he grew up in Queensland. Like, no wonder he, you know, (laughs) I mean, he's like maybe one of the most cricket people of all time, Andrew Simons, just because of his background. It is just not a straightforward thing. And I think that a lot of the people who feel that way, their family are born in India and always raised in India, or born in England and always raised in England, and five generations go back to Australia. But for people like you and I, we just don't see it anywhere near the same way because you qualify for half the nations in the world at the moment. My kid tried to qualify for about three different places. You know, we, we spent a couple of months in St. Lucia once. So I'll probably try and claim that, knowing my kids. So it, it just is a far bigger problem than just occasionally watching Oman and going, there's too many Pakistanis in that team. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say, you know, people who are not necessarily exposed to other countries and cultures in their own upbringing and and maybe only have a connection to one particular country. Uh, And in the Indian context, of course, cricket is so synonymous with the way Indians express our national identity, right? And it's, it's a real marker of pride and patriotism and all of this kind of stuff. Well, again, it's not the reality of the sport elsewhere most people are just trying to play the sport because they love the sport and they'll Mm. play it wherever they can but the other point to make is actually in my own experience growing up in thailand and that's where i learned how to play cricket i first played with a hard ball in a school gymnasium on the outskirts of bangkok and so my entrance into this profoundly colonial game was in one of these countries that had very little to do with empire. But it actually brought me closer to Thailand. It made me feel like I was part of something that perhaps in other areas of life, I felt very removed from Thai society. We learned the national anthem. I started to engage more with um, young Thai players and coaches. These were the first ethnic Thai players that were coming through the development program. And cricket has created an affinity for me with Thailand that's probably deeper than it otherwise would have been. So I love the sport and I love watching Australian cricket. I love watching Indian cricket, but I also have this connection to my adopted country, so to speak, Thailand, because of the sport, which was foreign to that whole country anyway. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a strange thing. And it was actually that connection that got me earlier this year. I I was with the Thai women's team at the World Cup. And, um, you know, again, I don't speak fluent Thai. So it was a weird thing. None of the girls spoke fluent English. So it was this weird kind of like still bumbling about trying to communicate. But I felt right at home because I'd grown up in that cricketing ecosystem Mm. to the extent that it existed. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. One of the things you talk about in your piece is the racialized notion of this. I find that very interesting because obviously the English team had a lot of Zimbabweans, South African, Australians. Well, Ben Stokes is a New Zealander. And they have cop criticism, of course, at times. And they've probably been called a South African second eleven at times. But when you go back 
I don't know how much you know about Ranji, but obviously he is almost the first famous person who was born in one country and played for another because the Australian English and South Africans were all kind of English at that point. So Ranji is obviously born in India. He moves to the UK, learns his cricket really in the UK, becomes good in the UK, probably because they had better coaching methods and you know better facilities for him to work on his game. When he first starts to play, there was this really interesting thing where a lot of the rich English players are obviously not born in England. They're born in wherever their family is ruling at the time. They're, you know, born in uh, India. Like Jardine was born in India, for instance. And there's a lot of guys, I think Lord Harris uh, might have been born over there as well. So they're very particular with Ranji and they call him a bird of passage. And the only reason Ranji ends up playing for England is essentially because. He is the star player of that era, and he will sell a lot of tickets. So the first time he should have got picked for England, he didn't get picked for England. And then the next time, I can't remember what it was, it was up north. It might have been Headingley where the next test was, or Manchester. And they basically needed to sell, sell more tickets, and they realized that Ranchi would sell tickets. There's a real racialized sort of notion in all of this. So I go back to Oman because I think they're the ones who sort of copped it the most of, re- of very recent times of, of the sort of Pakistani second eleven type the talk of Amman. But when you look at a team like Hong Kong, for instance, they are such a melting pot of so many different, you've got English school teachers, you've got Australian expats who've gone over for random reasons. You've got uh, you know someone like Ryan Campbell who went over to Hong Kong as a coach and then became naturalized. But then you have players like Mark Chapman, who are even more confusing because Mark Chapman is obviously, he has Chinese ethnicity and white ethnicity within him. He's learnt a lot of his cricket in Hong Kong, but also played a lot of his cricket in New Zealand. And so the Hong Kong team is this sort of weird mix. So I suppose what I'm asking is, do you think that a lot of the extra pressure put on a team like Oman, for instance, is because of the fact that quite clearly there's a racial element to it? that it is a Pakistani-looking team? Or is this just because it's a pure numbers game? Because obviously England and Hong Kong have still had to um, handle it. And then compared to Oman, I would assume England and Hong Kong would be far more multi-ethnic societies in general. It's a very good question. I use the term racialized cliche in the piece. Uh, and again, I mean, there's no real evidence in the sense that there's, there's not been like studies done on you know the extent to which Oman is criticized versus Hong Kong or the UK. But there's this real kind of, I guess, trajectory in associate cricket of countries where the sport is not mainstream amongst the domestic population being played by South Asian migrants. Um, It was often the case around Asia, not just in West Asia, but in the Southeast Asian context. Thailand, again, Hong Kong to an extent. Hong Kong, I think, I mean, it's always been a mixture of of British expats and South Asian. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I heard it, uh, anecdotally heard it used in the context of Hong Kong, in the context of Singapore, definitely in the context of the UAE and your Qatars and your Omans. So I don't know if there's a hard and fast distinction to be made around people of subcontinental race, so to speak. I guess the more interesting point to me is what status those migrants actually have in that country and connection they have to that country. So, for example, you know, I, I used to, growing up in the age group tournaments, it would come up time and time again, oh, Hong Kong is full of Pakistani migrants. And in that particular context, a lot of those guys were born in Hong Kong. A lot of them had uh, had played mm-hmm. all their cricket in Hong Kong. Some of them were Hong Kong citizens. So it's not so much... 
I don't know to what extent it's a thing of race per se. I think it's more, um, you often hear it from teams or fans of teams who don't have any foreigners. Yeah. Uh, however, that's understood, whether racially or in terms of citizenship status. And they will criticize everyone else. Yeah. It doesn't matter who, they, you know, often when they lose a game. Yeah, no, it's very fair. I mean, there has been a racial issue, obviously, within cricket in England in the 90s, where the white African players were seen as part of English cricket culture, and the West Indian cricket players was not seen as, as part of the English cricket culture. And you see it now with, you know, not everyone, of course, but with certain people amongst the society in the UK sort of still see it that sort of way. The Asian cricketers are now sort of coming in. So I think that's always going to be there. Again, in my experience growing up, there's also always dynamics between different groups of foreigners playing cricket mm. in a country. And often those dynamics exist around divisions of race and cultural practices attached to race. So you often have the Aussie expat teams and the Indian expat club yeah. teams and the Pakistani teams, and they might come together in a national team, but they don't really necessarily engage that closely. And there's, you know, strong rivalries there as well. So that's an interesting, and you see that across associate domestic competitions. Which also makes sense too. Like if you, I remember there was an Australian cricket team in China, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And that was because there was a bunch of Australians in China in whatever city it was. And so they got together in the same way the Indians would do that. And, and if there's no proper cricket culture to go into, you form your own. And if you're going to form your own cricket culture, more often than not, it's going to be that way. I, I had a friend recently who was trying to play cricket in the UAE. And he was just saying that uh, he, he's an English guy and he, he, he said he found it very hard to sort of seamlessly fit into a Pakistani cricket league just because the games didn't seem to be scheduled. Like he was just like, I will be free at 3.30 on Thursday. And they'd be like, oh, there's no game on Thursday. And then at 4.30 on Thursday, he'd be called and said, you need to get to wherever in half an hour because the game's starting. And he's like, but you told me, but that was because they were going around their work schedules and suddenly a bunch of them were free and they were like, well, we could schedule another game here. And so you could see how those sorts of things naturally sort of filter out. Just staying on Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is a fascinating place. I mean, from a cricket point of view, I have no fascination with it outside of cricket. I could not give a shit about anything else about Hong Kong outside of cricket. Just putting that out there. Occasionally what Daryl Morey tweets from a basketball sense and cricket. Anchi Rath comes from there. I've known Anchi well, probably since I started covering Hong Kong cricket a little bit, as much as I've ever covered Hong Kong cricket. So back um, 2016, probably. And then obviously I went out to uh, Hong Kong as well, whenever that was. And I mean, he's a really interesting modern cricket person. And he goes back to that Gareth Southgate quote we, I was talking about at the start, where essentially he's from an Indian household, but an Indian household that was within Hong Kong. He's then his family had a lot of money. So he was sent to England to learn his cricket. He went as far as he could in Hong Kong cricket. And basically outgrew Hong Kong cricket. I think it's probably fair to say he was so good there. He then tried to make it in English cricket, but had problems with visas. I know Middlesex tried to get him on the board. And they certainly thought he was good enough to play uh, first-class cricket in England, which in itself is an incredible thing that a Hong Kong player was seen at that level at that stage. But because of many different reasons, mostly I think visa-related, to be fair, he couldn't actually play cricket in England. He's now gone to India to do that and he talks about i think you use a comment from another emerging cricket podcast where essentially he's an outsider everywhere he goes and yet he's a cricketer everywhere he goes which i find just a fascinating thing yeah yeah and, and just i mean i think he was called up for the england 
under-19 squad at some point as well, which triggered him looking into his eligibility and the like. He's the quintessential third-culture kid cricketer in the sense that as cricket develops and becomes a more global game, at the same time, you have an increasing number of people who have connections to multiple societies. And so those two things are sort of going in tandem in many ways. I think part of the challenge of him outgrowing Hong Kong cricket is the fact that Hong Kong cricket itself has nowhere else to go. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's, it's sort of this vicious cycle because what would assist in some ways Hong Kong cricket to go to the next level, as with a number of other associates, is additional government funding, which in turn, in many cases, is dependent on the involvement of the sport in multi-sport competitions. So mm. the Southeast Asian Games, Asian Games, the Olympics. Now, in, in Hong Kong's context, they do have significant support from what they have had in the recent past from the Hong Kong Sports Institute and the government there. But part of the reason that associate cricketers are always looking for the opportunity to play cricket in another country, usually a a test-playing country, if they have some connection there, is because they get to that point where they're too good or they're too serious um, and they want to make a life out of Mm. cricket, but they can't. And so in that sense, the game still hasn't caught up to the reality of the world that we live in, or the governance of the game. Yeah, definitely. So I, I was contacted recently by an American businessman who I think was, I can't remember if he was Indian. I think he was born in India, but raised in America, very much an American. And he was saying that Americans won't take up cricket until the team is made up of kids from Iowa, essentially. He never said that. But I, when I think of very, very white bread people, I think of Iowa. And that's essentially what he was trying to say, that we'll have to do that. And I said, yeah, but also Americans won't pick up cricket unless their team is good enough that it starts to spread the word of cricket around the place. There is this sort of natural split there where you and I both understand that if we want cricket to be really big in Germany and we want Germany to be as good as they can be in cricket, it can't just be immigrants and a couple of locals. It has to be countrywide. That doesn't mean that a a big part of the team won't still be from immigration, but it needs to be that the leagues and all the systems that that it's building up because you can't build a cricket culture from a couple of thousand expats. What you really need is this huge world for, for a team to be very good. But the other side of it is that in order to find all those local kids, the cricket team has to be continually be in the newspapers and on websites and in social media and talking. And when I did the history of Irish cricket, so Ireland was another country that was slammed for having expats and, you know, Trent Johnston and Ant Boater and many different players from, from many different backgrounds. At the start, that's how I started. Wow, you know, John Davidson plays for Canada and Trent Johnston plays for Ireland. How serious can they be? Because neither of them made it in Australian cricket. But you then start to understand that like someone like Kevin O'Brien, who is an Irish player, who is, you know, Irish born and bred, comes from an Irish cricket family. To be able to be in a change room with Trent Johnston to begin with is huge. Trent Johnston played with Glenn McGrath. He now has that access to him. Also, it strengthened the team at a time that the team needed to be stronger. And if you look at Ireland, in 2007, it did look like a team that had a bunch of sort of immigrant players there with basically Ed Joyce being the one sort of lone star Irish player at that point. And now it feels like a really, really Irish team with an Irish ethic. And that doesn't mean that they still won't bring in someone like Tim Murtagh and uh, was it Jacob Mulder, their leg spinner, I think was an Australian. It doesn't mean that that won't happen. But the Irish cricket team plays cricket like an Irish cricket team now. And they have an Irish identity. 
that's basically, if you go back to the history of cricket, that's what Australia did. That's what South Africa did. That's what the West Indies did. And we've had countries that have done that and that hasn't worked. So for instance, Argentina did that. And then because all the English people left Argentina, it didn't hang on. But in the countries where it has worked, you have these really strong overseas feelings and these these people who who maybe weren't born in their country or maybe don't even feel like they are from that country. But when they get out on the cricket field, Trent Johnson was an Irish cricketer and Peter Boren, look what Peter Boren has managed to do for Dutch cricket. When it comes down to it, that just seems to be how cricket has managed to work. And so I almost think that we're looking at it backwards. We're looking at it from a negative point of view, whereas actually we should be thinking, let's get as many Pakistanis as we can into the Qatar team and let's get as many Sri Lankans as we can into the Ugandan team and whichever country it is, because they're eventually going to grow it. And as that team gets better, what seems to happen in cricket is then the locals come. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different dynamics here. I guess just to make a quick point about Australia, for example, being a settler colonial society, it was actually the, you know, it was the the British who came in here and, and settled and then became Australian, right? There were Britishers who brought a British sport and continued to play that British sport as Australians. Whereas in, like in India, for example, it was a transferring of the cricket culture to a domestic population. It's variations off that. I don't know. I I think it's a bit of a balance. So just thinking about the German example and and a number of others, there is a race element here. So my question is, if uh, a significant proportion of the migrants that have come to Germany from South Asia become German citizens and continue to play cricket, there's a question of, nationally speaking, the level to which they will be accepted and alongside that, the sport that they bring with them, which is, you know, still associated, my assumption, with South Asian foreigners or South Asian Mm. Germans, right? So it actually goes back to that earlier point about to what extent cricket is associated with subcontinental races or is racialized in that way. So you could have a situation in which a large number of German citizens play the sport, they're South Asians, but it still doesn't become um, mainstream. And it still isn't well-funded relative to other sports, etc. The total flip side to that is what we also want to avoid to a degree is, is countries actually handing out citizenship to elite foreign sports people just to improve the quality of their teams. And we see that happen in other sports. I don't know how much that exists in associate cricket. I don't think it does to a huge extent where, you know, governments actually provide passports. But, I mean, the ultimate point over a period of time, for me anyway, is I think if you had particularly Olympic recognition of the sport, you would see investment from national governments, significant financial investment from national governments to a point where a lot more teams would become a lot more competitive. I don't know to what extent they would be able to compete with test teams and in what time frame, even with that investment. So, for example, cricket's been part of the Asian Games for the last two iterations, definitely in 2017. And there was significant investment from those governments into national teams that were exclusively Indigenous, right, born and bred Mm. in those countries. And it didn't really result in magnitude of, of orders, better performances by Malaysia or Thailand in the ICC qualifying 
pathways despite those investments. So, I, yeah, it's, I mean, again, it's a, such a complex question or set of themes. Um, I mean, essentially, so the way I look at cricket is probably different to the way that other people look at cricket. I think most people look at cricket as a national sport. So I actually think that cricket is a family sport. So essentially, almost all cricket is handed down from a family to the rest of their family. So you might have a mother that likes it or a grandmother or a grandfather or an uncle or an auntie or a brother-in-law, whatever it is, cricket is handed down that way, right? That means that you have to build it up from the base. So even if you bring in all these immigrants, it's not so much that the immigrants will grow the game, it will be the next generation. And those immigrants will marry other people and will, and will be involved with other people. And so in, in our local area, almost everyone who plays cricket comes from a cricket background. All the kids that go to my son's cricket training are English, or they've got an Australian father, or they come from an Indian family or a Sri Lankan family. But we had the ability to bring down a bunch of Polish kids because they're friends with our kids to come down to cricket. That's how families grow cricket. And I think as these immigrants have the chance to be more and more involved with society, and they're not going to be in all countries, as you and I know, you know, I don't know how often Pakistani people get to chill out with Emiratis, even if they were both born in the same country. But in the countries where that can happen, you can certainly see how going forward, you have the ability to build what I would call a cricket family. And from cricket families, essentially cricket teams come from and cricket environments come from. And I think what your piece shows is that that has happened again and again and again around the world in many different ways. As you said, the Australian and South African situation is completely different to what the Oman and Qatar situation is. But cricket's way is finding its way into all these different societies. And then it ends up in one small little section of the population and then sometimes it spreads like a tumor and that's all i ask for is for cricket to continue to spread like a tumor <laughs> can, I make, can i make a couple of points i, I guess just to, i suppose i agree with that in that in the context that i uh, broadly were familiar with in the associate world where government has taken an interest a significant interest in the sport and has tried to build a national team china being a probably the best example of it and again, I, this is without knowing exactly how much investment has been put in. in but they did host the Asian Games. They did construct cricket stadium, et cetera, et cetera. Cricket has just not taken hold in mainland China. So in that sense, you're right. But in another sense, that spells a challenge for countries that don't have significant amounts of, mi of migration mm -hmm. from the cricket-playing world. And, and I guess going back to Ashwini's point, Russia is probably amongst those countries where you sort of have no choice but to to engineer the emergence of cricket amongst the population with an investment in money. But a kind of point, and this is from the women's game, really, is that, and I go back to Thailand because I know it well. Did I have a women's team? I wasn't sure. That, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right. in, in that context, there was no culture, there was no competition. Mm. None of these girls had ever played cricket. None of their families knew what cricket was. No one knew what cricket was. Now, to an extent, that's because the, the women's game is not as competitive in the associate world. And, you know, with a level of seriousness and a good development program, they were able to parachute their way to the top. I wonder whether that's replicable and to what degree in the associate men's game. Um, I mean, I think Malaysia is probably the best example of a that I can think of of a association that takes very seriously the building of an indigenous cricket culture through the schools, through the state associations, and really focuses on its national teams being exclusive. I mean, they have the odd expat or two. Um, the Maldives is another one. 
take great pride in developing Indigenous cricketers and mainstreaming that to the extent possible, with limited success, of course. But I don't know where that will go. But um, just to relate to that, I guess, that point in the Southeast Asian context, Malaysia have been parachuted by Singapore in the last couple of years. And, you know, not to diminish the Singapore development programs, which actually also really have a lot of positives to them, but it's players like Tim David who have really taken them to the next level, players who have played their cricket elsewhere. So very complex. I'm gonna, that's going to be the end of the podcast. It's going to be you sighing and then saying very complex. Thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. My pleasure. And can I just make a, a, a last-minute plug for Emerging Cricket? Anyone who's interested in the associate world, get on that website. No, you Thanks, can't, that will be deleted. <laughs> I've, said it, I've said it. I'm doing my penance for Tim Cutler. <laughs> Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. Podcast Network.